The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. And so it's our annual review of books and we're starting with non-fiction and yet again this year I'm delighted to welcome Pascal Donoghue, the outgoing Minister for Finance, probably incoming Minister for Public Expenditure and journalist and broadcaster Lise Hand to go through their favourite non-fiction books of the year. We asked you to do five each but you have a common one that I want to start with. You both have opted for Bono's Surrender, 40 songs, one story. Lise, why did you go for this? Well, I mean, obviously, as a rock chick and uh, of long standing, I was obviously going to read this and, um, you know, I'd followed you too since the very start. And I know everybody says, oh, I was in the dando. I actually was. And though I actually thought they were really terrible. And there was another band called DC9 that I liked. And I was sure that DC9 were going to make it. So obviously, inevitably, I became a rock critic several years (laughs) later. So, you know, obviously, this book was of great interest to me. And... To be honest, I would recommend anybody who hasn't got this book yet to to actually listen to it as an audiobook. It's absolutely brilliant. He reads it. Obviously, he sort of sings various of the lines. He's a great mimic. And I just think it really works brilliantly as an audiobook. It really does. It's, it's a very, um, it's almost like conversational. I mean, it's Bono being Bono. Uh, there's a kind of discourse it can be quite verbose, interesting, funny, thoughtful, and it just works really well, I think, as an audiobook as opposed to a written book. Um, and I found it very interesting because I, I, it's almost like two books in one. There's the story of his upbringing in Dublin, uh, quite a lot of attention paid to his upbringing and the death of his mother, Iris, when he was 14 and his difficult relation with his father and the formation of the band. But there's a whole second section to this, which is his campaigning, the campaigning side of his life his work on the one campaign, his work on the uh, drop the debt campaign. And they're both equally fascinating. Actually, probably to be honest, I found nearly the campaigning stuff more interesting. I mean, the name dropping is spectacular, spectacular. But I think he found himself having been top of the world as a singer. And suddenly he was knocking on doors and people were going, who the hell are you? And he was gaining access. Pascal Donoghue. So I'm as far from being a rock chick as you can possibly imagine. <laughs> that goes without saying. And I, but you grew up not far from Bono. Uh, well, a little bit. So I, my home's Fibsborough and his home, as is famously known, as Cedarwood Road. Sorry, I would like to just take issue. I mean, you were always at gigs. I mean, there's a bit of a I, rock. There's a bit of a rock chick in you. I now. am, but I still think it'd be a stretch to describe me as a rock chick, please. <laughs> okay. uh, but I am indeed. I'm a big gig goer, and the part of Dublin that Bono is from, I know well. It's near where I live, and. I think this is a magnificent book and it has led me to wonder, is there any Irish person of of this century who has led as varied a life as Bono has led? Because even with the name dropping, which is spectacular, this is still a man that knew that partied with Frank Sinatra and stood in the Oval Office with George Bush. It's still a man who grew up in Cedarwood Road and ended up lobbying people in the IMF for debt relief while being one of the most successful rock artists of our era. And through the book, there is an air of self-depreciation in us, which I think some will find maybe uh, refreshing. And it's also full of love. It's full of love for his family, 
for growing up in Dublin. And I just think this is a remarkable book and a really big book. It's very big. So I I would, I'm going to get myself in trouble. In my opening read, I'm going to suggest this is the ideal Christmas gift and the ideal book to read across Christmas. A couple of things there, Pascal. He's been a man who's had extraordinary access, who's been in extraordinary situations. And yet it struck me that perhaps the greatest strength of the book and indeed the stage show that he put on at the Olympia, which both of us were lucky enough to have been at, was actually the ordinariness oh, of yeah. his upbringing yeah. and his appreciation and understanding. And actually, despite all of the success that he's achieved, the central issues in his life seem to remain his relationship with his parents. His relationship with his parents and his relationship with his family. And going from uh, the wonderful chapters at the start about trying to form you two while being in Mount Temple, all of the challenges they had going over to London with Ali trying to get a deal off a record company, all the way up to the peak of his global fame, uh, which... Um, he tells through his albums and through his songs, but also through his campaigning. Percolating through all of this is his relationship with his parents. Uh, his mum, as Lee said, he lost in incredibly tragic circumstances. And then his family and kids. And I felt coming out of this book, there was a great sense both of imperfection, of an appreciation of what matters in life, in art, but also dare I say it, a degree of humility. You're about a decade and a bit younger than Bono. So I think for Lisa and myself, we would have actually appreciated a lot of the younger years because we'd have sort of lived them ourselves. Yeah. So how was it for you to sort of do that stuff that was just a little bit older than you, perhaps? So really interesting. I mean, the albums that mean the most to me would be Songs of Experience and then Songs of Innocence. And out of all of the gigs that I've been out of you two, the ones that meant the most to me at an emotional level were actually the gigs he performed in the Tree Arena around those albums. Because as a Northsider, uh, it afforded me a, a degree of connection with his music that I hadn't had up to that point. But all of the earlier albums, of course, I've got to know, but I've just got to know a little later in life. I well, suspect we're amongst the generation that might prefer the earlier stuff, Lise. Yeah, I, I probably, I think... A lot of it had to do with the fact that when the Joshua Tree came out, um, I was lucky enough to be in America for mm-hmm. when, when they were playing the Joshua Tree. And f- for the first time as an Irish person, people were coming up to me and they were like, oh, you know, you know, you too. And, you know, Bono. And it was for the first time yeah. people weren't saying, you know, oh, that's a place where the yeah. bombs go off and wherever. And like that Completely. meant a huge, huge amount, amount to me as, as, an, yeah. as an Irish person. Yeah. And the other thing just about... The band, we talk about the love, you know, for his family. But I think it's actually for somebody who is, you know, gives a lot. He's actually quite restrained when talking about the band. And it's that sort of massive privacy that's always existed around the band stays in in this book, even though his love for his his fellow band members come out. There's not a huge amount about them in the book. Well, and even beyond that, there's no score settling in this book. Although I suspect that maybe he didn't want to reopen old wounds and have people (laughs) shooting back at him. But the amazing thing about the book is you're reading uh, through it and you come across a passage and a chapter that reconnects with your experience of enjoying U2. So one of my great U2 music moments is a video that's available on YouTube and off there in the internet of uh, they go into a church in Harlem and they perform a gospel-backed version of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. 
And I'm reading through the latter part of this book and suddenly I come across a page or two where they talk about how they ended up in this church in Harlem and how they felt when they were doing it. And it is a book that is full of this kind of punch. Okay. It's great. We better move on to your other choices. We could spend all day talking about this. Pascal, you have picked The Fall of Boris Johnson by Sebastian Payne. Is this an exercise in schadenfreude on your part or is this to make sure that you don't repeat his mistakes for your own political fall? Uh, So actually, whenever I read uh, about these kind of moments in politics, I'm always reminded that there but for the grace of God go anyone. And indeed, there but for the grace of any country. These things can happen to countries as well. Um, but the reason why, I mean, I am going to disappoint you a little bit, man, and telling you that I don't go home at night and read books about politics <laughs> to relax from politics. <laughs> I wouldn't I expect hope you to. That's a good thing. <laughs> but this is a great read. And one of the reasons it's a great read is Sebastian Payne, who's a young journalist with the FT, he's just a great writer. And uh, the early chapters of the book are all about not just. Boris Johnson, but his team trying to grapple with the revelations of the parties. What happened? Who knew what? What did they say? And just when they think they've got to the bottom of what happened, something else happens. And it opens up with a brilliant chapter of something I can confidently assure you has never happened in Irish politics, which is Boris Johnson attending a dinner in a club in London called the Garrick. And the dinner, get this, is in the honour of opinion writers of the Daily Telegraph, columnists <laughs> of the Daily Telegraph. And Matt and Lise, you both know those moments don't happen here in Ireland. No, I'd have somebody taste my food. <laughs> and the book begins from there. And it's just a great read. OK, The Fall of Boris Johnson by Sebastian Payne. That's one I'm going to put on my list. Lise, your first choice, beyond Bono, is by a woman who was a guest here on The Last Word who did the Culture Club for us a couple of months ago, Kit DeWall. Her book, Without Warning and Only Sometimes. What's it about? Why did you enjoy it so much? Well, you know, isn't she the loveliest woman? Um, she. This book is about growing up in Birmingham in the 1960s. Her mother was Irish. Her father was from the Caribbean, from St. Kitts. And she grew up in poverty. I mean, there's, this, yeah. is a, this is a memoir about growing up in poverty. And to two parents who were, you know, in their own ways, quite troubled. And but it's the most extraordinary book because it's when you when you know, listening to me say that, it sounds like misery lit. And it's so far from that. It's just a warm story about family life, about, you know, taking a long look at, you know, at growing up in a, in a difficult household. But there's no bitterness. There's no recrimination. It's just full of really warm stories. And she constantly finds the good in her parents. And it's also it's quite funny. But yes, you know, it was a tough upbringing. I mean, her mother turned to, into a Jehovah's Witness mm. and used to drag the five children to the meetings and, you know, they'd have to sit there for hours and hours and they um, mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to celebrate Christmas. They couldn't even mention Christmas in the mm-hmm. house. She never celebrated Christmas. Birthdays were forbidden. Um, and yet there's sort of a, you know, there's a great warmth. She was able to sort of look at her parents and kind of see them for what they were. And uh, but, you know, the, the children were always poor. You know, when she went to a, a friend's house who had food in the house, she had to pretend her doll was hungry so that she could get some food. But it's just a warm, beautifully observed, wonderfully written book. Um, she takes the small, a small, med- ordinary lives and just turns them into something really rich and beautiful. 
So it sounds like misery lit, but it really isn't. That's Kit the Wall without warning and only sometimes. Pascal, you've picked a Simon Cooper book and Simon has been a guest on this yeah. programme previously, mainly for books he's written about football. Yep. He writes terrifically mm. about football. Indeed, what he's writing about the World Cup at present with Financial Times has been terrific as well. But he does write about other things as well. And you have a book, which again, I haven't had the chance to read and I must get, called Chums. Tell us about this. So this book is about the influence that Oxford had on the education and culture of a certain kind of young Tory, how it created an allure for them of trying to find the great heroic cause to follow on from what they perceived to be the heroicism of Thatcher, which became the cause of Britain leaving the European Union. And then the author contends that the culture of Oxford University equipped them with what some would call a fluency, but certainly a confidence that gave them the ability to make the case for Brexit. And Cooper is clear in arguing that this was a very negative legacy for the, uh, the culture, the, the society, the economics of uh, the United Kingdom and what is yet to come. But the book, when I started reading it, I found it really entertaining. The longer I read the book, the angrier I became. Angry? And you became angry? Yeah, I did what? become angry because... As I see the, um, the consequences of Brexit play out in so many different ways, it just became apparent to me that a contribution to this was a certain worldview that was created and um, uh, enabled by um, education at a certain place in a certain time. But hold on, what created this sense of delusion? Was it a sense of sort of extreme nationalism? Was it privilege because of wealth? What was it? So this is why this book is so good, because these feel really intangible and lofty topics that were put into each other, but it's brilliantly written by a very gifted writer. And basically the case that he makes is that for a certain kind of conservative politician, mainly a conservative politician. The first great cause uh, they saw of conservatism during the last century was victory during World War Two. One of the other great causes that followed on from that then was the cause of Thatcherism. And they saw, uh, you know, the end of the Iron Curtain, the change in the economy of the UK. And then a new generation of politician came along in the Conservative Party who was looking for the next great heroic cause. So it wasn't one necessarily created by nationalism. It was the search for a new big project. And a small group of politicians uh, within the Conservative Party formed a view, politicians like Daniel Hannan, like William Rees-Mogg, that that project indeed would be what became Brexit. Elitism writ large, but also a degree, dare I say, out of madness. Well, we have to bear in mind when making a claim like this that it was a, a proposition that the majority of the people in the United Kingdom did vote for and felt strongly about voting for. So I'd, I think when you use an adjective like that about a political argument, you diminish your ability to make the counter argument because somebody like me should be able to come up with a better argument than just saying your view is mad. But it certainly gave me a really, really good insight into the cultural and educational context that led to the cause for Brexit being formed and the ability to make the case for Brexit being strengthened so much. But as I say that, 
this sounds, I, I don't want to do the book a disservice. It's quite short. You've sold it to me. I'm uh, I, I, I actually yeah. read it going to and coming back from the United Kingdom because it's a very brisk read. He's a very, very accessible writer. And I do think for anybody who's looking to understand where British politics has gone to and indeed where it could yet go, this is a really insightful and enjoyable book. And at least before we take the break, you have another one which is exceptionally insightful about how British politics operates and is. does deal with Brexit on many occasions. It's written by a woman who I think would be the British equivalent to you, <laughs> Marina Hyde. What just happened? Dispatches from turbulent times. And we had her on the programme talking about it early in the year. I love her work and she was a brilliant interviewee. But tell us why you went to this book. Well, the first time I read a Marina Hyde column probably was during Brexit, actually, in The Guardian, where she's been a writer since uh, 2000. And I literally think I was sitting in my desk in Leinster House and I think I just took my notebook and flung it down on the desk and said, well, I might as well throw my hat at this because she was just so brilliant. Um, and she she just has this great facility with words. But in the in, in the introduction, she, she just wrote a couple of lines and it really chimed with me because obviously I worked as a political sketch writer for over a decade. And she said, I know some people think of column writing as an art, but to me, it's definitely not. It's a trade. You get up, you write something to fill a space and you hope it's not one of your worst shots and the people enjoy it. Maybe some columnists are out there imagining they're writing the first draft of history, but I feel like I'm just sticking a pin in a moment. In fact, I almost feel if I wrote my column in the afternoon, it would say something completely different from whatever I ended up writing that morning. Do you think that's six years on? Oh God, I didn't probably even think it by, by tea time. And but the stuff has endured. The, but this wrote, is the amazing endures. thing. It is. It's, it is a moment in time and the stuff endures. And not, she, she's so good at language that she can write incredibly rude things and often, you know, uses language that I can't believe she gets away with. I certainly wouldn't have got away with it. Many of us sometimes and feel the same reason you, Lise. <laughs> I always try to be equally horrible to everybody, at least. <laughs> and, you know, she but she was also incredibly per perspicacious because if you look back at some of the columns, they there's she made points that some of the more heavyweight political writers didn't make. Mm -hmm. And she was very good at drawing, you know, pen portraits of someone. I mean, there was one particular one she and she about uh, she wrote in um, June 2019, um, before, you know, during the, the race to, or the, the contest for to, to become the new leader. And she just about Boris Johnson. And she just says, journalist, novelist, Churchill biographer, politician, urban planner, diplomat. At this stage in Boris Johnson's storied career, we have to ask, is there anything he can do? <laughs> One pantingly autoerotic article in the, in the Boris fanzine, the Daily Telegraph, decided the runaway favourite looked like a prime minister in waiting. So close, but not quite. Johnson looks like Chucky if he borrowed a suit for a court appearance or a U-tree version of Wurzel Gummidge or what would happen if you started making Margaret Rutherford out of pa papier-mâché but got bored halfway through. Wait, so now, would you put your finger on there as well as her ability <laughs> to make popular cultural references yes, to make it all very accessible? It's absolutely. And this, I think, is the key and core of political sketch writing and mm -hmm. colour writing is to when people who pick up a paper or look online who don't normally read politics and you yeah. bring them in through humour and they maybe stay in and, you know, for a bit of illumination. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe why I just really felt kind of an affinity with her, though. And I'm not looking for praise here. She is just... You know, I'm Vauxhall Conference and she's like Premier League. And oh, I'm not you're looking for yourself no, down. I think no, we, have no, to, no. We, we have to intervene uh, at this point. We Matt have now. to intervene with a break <laughs> and then we come back with more with Lise Hand and Pascal Donahue of the Nonfiction Books of the Year after this. 
Welcome back. We're continuing with our non-fiction books of the year and we've got our A-team back together again this year of Lise Hand, the journalist and broadcaster, and the outgoing Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. So, we'll go to our other selections and you have gone for a book by Jonathan Friedland, who used to be a journalist. He still writes a newspaper column, I think. You've gone for a Second World War book called The Escape Artist. I have indeed. Now, I did pause in uh, wondering whether this is a book for Christmas. And I eventually decided it is a a book that could be a very good gift for Christmas, but it might not necessarily be a book that you will read across Christmas. Okay. Because I read it earlier on in the year. In fact, I read it during the summer and I did find it a very difficult read, but I found it definitely one of my books of the year. And the reason why is it tells the story about what was in essence, a Jewish teenager who became the man who broke out of Auschwitz. And he got out of Auschwitz because of his ability to memorise incredible detail regarding what guard would be where when, his ability to tolerate terrifying acts of physical endurance, and he escaped. And if that part of the story wasn't difficult enough, And I certainly found some chapters in the book incredibly difficult to read because of its description of life in a concentration camp. What comes later in the book is difficult for other reasons because it recounts his efforts to convince the politicians that the concentration camps existed and this horrific murder on a, on a civilizational wide scale was underway and the difficulties that he had in persuading European governments and the government in America that this was happening and the costs that he endured personally because of this. So it is one of these books that I think across the year it's, it's certainly worth reading because it will stay with you. It'll make you think about Europe. It'll make you think about man and it is normally man in his inhumanity to his fellow human and it makes you think about bravery and the power of somebody who tries to tell a story and uh, as I said it's not a book I'd read at Christmas but I look back at this year and all the books I've read and this would be one of the outstanding books that I'd recommend. That's The Escape Mm. Artist by Jonathan Friedland. Your next one, Lise, is Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, the reporters who took on a world at war. And this is by Deborah Cohen. Tell us about it. Yeah, I just sort of stumbled across this one and um, it's just fascinating. It basically takes four US foreign correspondents and talks about their lives. They were when they were in basically covering the European beat during the two wars and leading up to and during the Second World War. Um, there was John Gunther, uh, Jimmy Sheehan, the fabulously named Hubert, uh, Knickerbocker, who was known as Nick, and the wonderful Dorothy Masterson, who, much to my, off, my shame, I knew nothing about. And she ended up being the, mo- the first female syndicated political columnist. Uh, her columnist carried in 170 different organisation uh, papers and um, her broadcasts reached millions of viewers to the point or millions of listeners to the point that on the eve of the Second World War, she was actually 
called the second most influential woman in the United States beside Eleanor Roosevelt. And she was also actually the uh, inspiration for uh, the Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn film, Women, Women of the Year, Woman of the Year. And they were just remarkable because they... They they were in Europe during that incredible time where the whole plates of European politics were shifting and, you know, a lot of the royal families were crumbling. And they interviewed everybody. They interviewed Stalin. They interviewed Hitler. They interviewed Trotsky. I mean, it was, or Stalin's mother, actually, it was. Um, and they, they had a bird's eye view of just watching the fascists rise and fall to power. Some of them, Dorothy Masterson actually, originally she said she thought that the little man Hitler would fizzle out. But then she obviously rapidly changed her mind. That was in 1932 and she uh, became the first foreign correspondent banished from Nazi Germany. And they, they, they read this, talking about the first draft of history, they really were and... There's, I mean, it's it's uproarious on many levels. I mean, they talk. It's you know, the 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 hotel in the title is the Hotel Vienna, and they used to sit there and you know they describe watching the comings and goings of you know former Ottoman uh, Ottoman potentates and Montenegrin bandits, schemers, gunrunners, and the outs conniving against the status quo. Actually, it sounds a bit like Leinster House, Pascal. You probably feel totally at home there. There was an air of conspiracy about the place, definitely. But um, it's. You know, they 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 were more than just correspondents. They were players. They uh, like Dorothy Masterson. At some stage, there was an American kind of German, I suppose, sort of almost like a Nazi of sort of backed event in 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 uh, New York, and she ended up kind of going there in full evening dress and standing up and kind of going bunk all bunk. Um, now, some of it does drag a little bit. There's a lot about uh, psychoanalysis and all that. This has been obviously Sigmund Freud and all that. But you can kind of skip over those bu- okay. bits. But it's honestly, it's a really, really interesting read. I want to jump on because we haven't much time left and we have a couple of books I definitely want to get to to finish out. Particularly your one, given your love of music, Pascal, that Lise has mentioned earlier, you've gone for this book that Nick Cave done with, has done with Sean O'Hagan, Fate, Hope and Carnage. Tell us about it. So Nick Cave is one of those musicians that I listen to late in the night and early in the morning because I find him a an, a musician of just the most amazing grace and beauty and so enjoyable uh, and rewarding and fun to listen to, but with such beauty. And he is an artist that um, has also experienced incredible personal loss, incredible loss. And I've experienced that only tangentially through his music, through listening to that, until this book came out. And um, this book is about the loss that he's endured in his life and about how this has influenced his art and how it has influenced his spiritual outlook. And it is a remarkable book. There's a particular chapter in it called The second chapter, it's called The Utility of Belief. And this is a rock and roll artist who, my God, has lived the rock and roll life, to put it mildly. Uh, And he writes about the importance of belief and how that belief has been forged for him and influenced by him in the crucible of grief. And it's incredibly moving. But what I really, really enjoyed this book as well is despite this loss And despite his views on the challenges life can bring, there's an optimism in it that I found wonderful. Last choice, and we haven't much time, Lise, a book called Negative Space. This is an Irish book. 
Yes, um, this is written by uh, Christine, Christine Smith, or Leach, excuse me, who um, has worked as art critic um, for 20 years writing um, in newspapers. And the centre of this book really is actually a broken marriage. It's a breakdown of a marriage. But again, it just takes a very different view of it. Um, it's contemplating, I suppose, the end of a marriage, but also it's a meditation contemplation on writing, on art. And it's really beautiful. It's 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 beautifully written. It's what I would call a complex book written simply. And that is, you know, I, I mean that as a compliment. It's a short book. It's about nine essays, stroke chapters. And it's a meditation on the importance of writing to somebody who, who lives in the writing world and how writing helped heal her and, you know, it was part of her journey. And the, 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 the title Negative Space actually comes from um, something her mother, who was an artist, uh, taught her. And she said, when I was six or seven, she taught me to, dream, to, to draw by teaching me about negative space. That is how to draw objects, by drawing the gaps between them, by drawing what they are not. And in a way, that's the theme that runs through it. It's about looking at things and not seeing the obvious, seeing behind them, seeing around them, making connections with how you feel on an emotional level, um, the unspoken that you find in art and music and, and writing and how it relates to your own life. And it's, you know, it is a, it's a short book. It's a lovely read. And um, I think it's and it's also, I think, a very modern book by a very modern Irish woman. So I really, really recommend it. That's Negative Space by Christine Leach. We're out of time, unfortunately. We're up against it clockwise. Pascal Donoghue, least hand as ever, thank you for joining us to do your non-fiction books of the year. We'll put the details up on our website today, FM. We'll tweet them out as well. And just to let you know, we'll be getting to fiction tomorrow evening. Adele Coffey and Kevin Power will be going through their selections of the best of the year on tomorrow's programme. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekday from 4.30. Today.